Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. So the big question of this morning is, how do I get it? It's a real simple question. And I spent some time looking on the internet about what has it and what doesn't have it in 2013. And uh, the reason I have to look on the internet is because I clearly don't have it, okay? I, you know, I might be able to ask the green man or Dusty or Jeremy or somebody else and find out what's it, but I'm not the guy who can tell you what's it. But here's what it says. The experts say that what has it in 2013, that protein drinks are all the it in 2013. In fact, in fact, there's a specific kind of protein that if you have it in 2013, you need to have. It's called corn. It is made out of brown algae. Now, I don't know about you, but I cleaned my fish tank growing up of algae. I don't want to eat algae, but apparently that is it. If you want to take care of your tummy in 2013, gluten-free diets and probiotics are definitely it, but molecular gastronomy is no longer it. Do you know what a molecular gastronomy is? I had to look it up. Molecular gastronomy is the study of the science of cooking. And out of that, they come up with such amazing amazing creations by combining what naturally happens chemically in food and then bringing other chemicals and other combinations of food together. They create new foods, things like hot gelatin. You can have hot gelatin. That would be great. You can have um, things like uh, faux caviar. You can have... Crab ice cream. You can even, they even created one of the biggest finds of molecular gastronomy in the last couple of years was the use of alginates. You can stick these alginates in your food and then your food will explode in your mouth. Isn't that, wouldn't that be exciting? But I thought we already did that with Pop Rocks and getting people to laugh when they had stuff in their mouth. In education in 2013, apparently according to the experts, at least the ones that come up high on the Google search list, Um, In education in 2013, flipped classrooms have it. And apparently augmented reality no longer has it. And I think, even though I don't really know what augmented reality, that's a really good thing because I think we could send a lot of politicians back to school and they could learn how to not augment reality and budgets and augment reality and their communications, sorry. Pants have all the it in 2013. And I'm sorry if you're a Megan fan Meggings are no longer it. And I'm glad because you would not want to see me up here in Meggings. Do you know what Meggings are? They are like skin tight pants. I looked them up and I went, I think those things are the same reason why when we accidentally ended up on a vacation at a nude beach that we've walked away thinking there's a reason God has clothes. (laughs) According to the Washington Post, The color for 2013 is unripened green. It has all the it and safety oranges out. And I don't know why Washington Post would be publicizing this one. It doesn't seem to fit the culture there. But apparently taxidermy is all the it this year. And hand fishing, noodling is out. And Samsung is it. Apple is out. And Bilbo Baggins is it. And Honey Boo Boo is out. Sorry, to tell you that. Question for today, though, is how do we get it? We all talk about, in our worlds, the it factor, right? We hear that. There's shows about it. We talk about it. And basically, for us, really, I think what it means and the way it maybe applies to our lives is how do we get that winsome something about us that allows our life 
to be positively infectious to affect other people's lives for the good. How do we get that? And specifically in relation to our faith, how do we get that? Last week we talked about the difference between uh, a compelling lifestyle of, of amazing freedom and the ability to be free to be extravagant and be who we are and be expressive compared to a life that was constricted, a life that, uh, that struggled with beha- betraying our own beliefs and not living up to our own beliefs, not being free. And we saw in that uh, contrast and then the similarity that we all face that of, of the person who lives a betraying life is that we all tend to live life through a consumer mindset. Cost-benefit ratio. And then we talked the last week about how that consumer mindset really places in all of us this trigger that makes us prone to betraying our beliefs, betraying our relationships, and even betraying our faith. This week we're going to talk about a life that is compelling again but a life that is compelling that because it's so genuine, it's so honest, it's so winsome, it's so free that we can be courageous and we can stand up for our beliefs and yet we can do it in a way that doesn't come across as bullying, doesn't come across as harsh, doesn't come across as, as better than. It just comes across as winsomely friendly and accepting. And especially in regard to our faith, how do we live our faith and be faithful witnesses to Jesus in that way that's so attractive. Because to me, the most compelling things in life, well, we've seen some of them. In, as we've looked at the real Jesus, as we've, as we've studied this, we've seen Jesus be compellingly beautiful in the way he related to the woman at the well. He, she comes to him, and she's this woman who's, who's divorced five times, living with somebody who's not her husband right now, and she's just this picture of brokenness, looking for love in all the pl- wrong places, not fulfilling the beauty that she was created for. And Jesus somehow has this interaction with her where he, where he actually confronts, he actually exposes her sin, but she walks away from that interaction feeling so amazingly loved that she goes and the whole town comes out to find out who Jesus is. To me, that's the it factor. And that's what we all want. We want to have that kind of compelling, positive impact on people around us. We also saw it in Jesus when the religious leaders came to him and they confronted him and the, uh, and the political leaders tried to confront him and try to undermine him. And Jesus was just so, so clear, so honest, so compelling that even his, even his uh, detractors couldn't stand up to him. Even his enemies couldn't stand up to him. And when we look very closely at the eyewitness text and follow some of the characters through, we realize that even some of his detractors, some of his strongest detractors, started to become an inch towards becoming his friends. And the people loved his clarity and followed him, and it impacted them so strongly. How do we get that kind of an it factor in our life? How do we have that depth of confidence, that courage, that freedom to be that kind of person? In today's text, we see both Jesus and Peter essentially on trial uh, for their faith. In Jesus, we see one who is courageous, one who is faithful to his witness, and we see in Peter one who betrays his faith and isn't faithful to his witness. 
And we get to look at that theme again. And have you ever been there before in your own life? Have you ever struggled to be courageous, to be a witness for your faith? Have you ever walked out of an opportunity or an interaction with people where you walked away feeling like, I missed an opportunity or I maybe even avoided an opportunity to identify with Christ and to share how good, how loving, how amazing He is with someone? Have you ever been there? I think we probably all have if we're followers of Christ. And if you're here today and you're a person who's unconvinced, you're not sure about your faith, then, then you, may be will, you may be at the point right now where you're thinking, well, this doesn't really apply to me and I may be checking out. But I want to invite you to stay in the text and in the conversation with us today because the text is leading us all, regardless of our faith, regardless of whether we're convinced in Jesus, it's leading us all to a picture of who God is, to a picture of life where we're free to stand up for our beliefs, we're free to be courageous. We're free to share them. Not something that's worked up, not through something that's artificial, not in a forced way, not in a bullying way, but rather to be able to be that, who we are, live according to our beliefs and share them in a compellingly freeing way that just allows honest relationship, even between among those who agree or disagree with us. So even if you're unconvinced today, I think that you probably have that same hope for your life. You want your life to be a positive influence on other people. You want to be able to be free to live your values and who you are and stay true to who you are. And so this message is going to speak to you as well, but it's also going to give you a picture, again, of who Jesus is and going to help you understand really who He is today. So let's start by examining today. How Peter uh, went from unfaithfulness to the point that he got it. And Jesus helped him get it. Let's start by examining his failure, his failure to be faithful and true. It's found in Mark 14. We're going to look at selected passages. They'll be up on the screen for you. So let's, let's read along. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And we see later in the passage that follows, Jesus is arrested, and the text goes on to say in verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. Skipping down to verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he said, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. We see in this passage Jesus and Peter both essentially on trial, both in a sense being in court for their beliefs and being challenged 
to be faithful witnesses. And we see at the beginning of this passage that Peter voluntarily swears himself into court. He goes and says, I am better than all the rest of you. Even if the rest of you fall away, I will be remain faithful. Now, whenever we talk about a message where we talk about sharing our faith or owning our faith or telling the goodness of God to others when we're challenged, I think many of us walk away from messages like that, like Peter. We swear ourselves in. We say, we're going to be really faithful. We're going to be really good at this. We're going to go invite others. We're going to, we're going to share our relationship with Christ with others. And in Peter's specific case, when we're challenged about our association with him, we're going to own it. And we often walk away from those sermons voluntarily swearing ourselves in, determined to be better. And sometimes we are better. And then sometimes, and oftentimes, we still fail, right? When... Jesus is betrayed. We see in the text only Peter and John following him. And, uh, and not this text. John, we find from another eyewitness account, followed him. And Peter is afraid. But just think about the timing of this. It's just an hour before this that, that he swore in front of everybody he was going to follow. So even though he's afraid, he's going to gut it out. He's going to make sure he can't, that, that oath is tugging on him. And he's going to be there. And Peter tries so hard to keep his oath, but he fails spectacularly. In fact, I think it's even more spectacular than the text shows because as we look back at uh, commentators and Greek scholars, there's a couple things that the, the many of them will conclude that this English translation, especially of the third uh, betrayal of Jesus, is a sanitized version uh, trying to make it look better than it is. First of all, when it talks about the term uh, calling down curses, it's actually coming from the word anathematized, which if we really put that in our context, they, he is using vulgar, swearing, cursing language at that point. And then the Greek commentators will actually move on and say, we think that a lot of the English translations sanitize this because the construction of the grammar in Greek doesn't really allow for us to say that Peter was calling it down on himself. In fact, it's more logical that Peter was actually cursing, using profanity about Jesus himself. This is a spectacular fail on his part. The rooster crows and Peter utterly falls apart. And if we look at the passage in isolation, it's easy for us to just dismiss this and not relate to it because this is an extreme case, right? How many of us have faced this extreme of danger in our threat? But the reality of what we've looked at in the Real Jesus series as we've looked at Mark is that all along the way we have opportunities to be witnesses for him. Every single day we have opportunities to identify our faith with Jesus. And it's true for us as well. We go through our weeks and we have opportunities all along where we could identify with Jesus or not, where we could be a faithful witness or not. And and, and even the word witness itself comes from the word martyr, meaning to be faithful and true even at great cost, even possibly at death. And what Mark is exposing here for us as he writes this eyewitness account is that Peter didn't succeed. And we naturally won't either a lot of times. But the passage also shows Peter's healing and the resulting freedom to be faithful. The text itself shows us that Peter became free and courageous in his witness, free of anxiety, free of the fear of rejection, confidently, disarmingly able to be honest and true in a winsome way to attract people to him. And you say, really? All I saw in this passage is his failure. 
And that's where I sat when I first read it as well. But what we forget is that Mark is the scribe of this eyewitness account. And the person actually telling this story, the eyewitness behind Mark, is Peter himself. Peter is telling these stories on himself. And when we understand that, we have to conclude that Peter came to the point where he was able to own this stuff. He was no longer afraid. He was no longer afraid of what people would think of him. He was no longer afraid of not having the right answers and not being good enough to represent Jesus. And this is a big deal because when you look at the culture, we've looked a lot in the series about uh, the Pharisees coming to Jesus and confronting him. And we, we, we can understand clearly from this that for the Pharisees in that day, to be a leader, you needed to demonstrate spiritual superior knowledge, superior spirituality, superior faithfulness, superior morality, everything was about being superior. And there are even some historians and biblical commentators who would assert that up until Christianity emerged on the scene, with a few exceptions of how Judaism was practiced at times, all cultures of the world are shame-based cultures, meaning they're built on saving face. They're built on your leaders are always the ones who are superior performers. You would never discuss things of failure and cowardness of this cowardliness of this type and betrayal of this level especially not for the person who Jesus himself was designating to be the leader of the movement and yet peter is telling this stuff honestly and openly about himself and it's showing that he's being able to be faithful and true without shame he's not hiding He's not covering up. He's not embellishing. He's not overlooking failure. He's publicly talking about it without shame, faithfully testifying to who Jesus is, who he was, is, and how Jesus has made an impact in his life. And in this, Peter teaches us a valuable lesson to guide all of us when we're in these conversations of faith or when we face these challenges to identify with Christ or are asked to talk about our faith or have the opportunity. It's all about Peter's move beyond the, uh, realizing that he, it's not about his ability to be right. It's not about his perfectness, perfectness or, or, or success. It's, he doesn't have to be uptight about winning an argument. He doesn't have to have all the right answers. He doesn't have to feel the anxiety, the fear of rejection, the worry of not being good enough to represent Christ. He does not any longer have to hide anything. There's nothing that will hinder his ability to be effective to represent Christ in his world today, tomorrow, no matter what's going on in his life. He is free to winsomely share how much God loves him. And the change that we see in Peter is something that we talk about a lot. If you've been in church for more than a year, you've probably heard these things, and we recognize it, and we talk about these things. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John 1, 1.9, and, and then again in two one, just a couple of verses later, he says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then a couple verses later, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
Again, what we're seeing here is we're seeing a picture of Jesus in the courtroom of heaven representing us, being an advocate for us, in a sense being our defense attorney for us. And the reality is that all of us know that there is this bar and there is this courtroom that someday we need to answer to, this, this bar of performance to which, of right and wrong to which we'll be held accountable. We all know that. I mean, think about it. When someone accuses you of doing something wrong, when you're in a fight with your, your spouse or your boss or somebody else in your life, do you walk away or maybe even sometimes in that fight get into this line of thinking? You go, well, yeah, I did that, but I'm not all bad. I'm still nice to my kids. I'm still generous to the poor. Or I'm okay, right? Or sometimes you walk away and you have this argument saying, well, yeah, I just had a, I had a lot of pressure, and yes, I, I did blow it. I did blow my top. I did something I shouldn't have done, but I'm really a good person. I do more good than bad. I'll be okay, right? All of us have that thought process go on when we're accused of something in an argument. And when you're doing that, you acknowledge that standard is there. And you are representing yourself in that argument, in your defense against those standards. And the text says, someone else desires to represent us. And that someone is Jesus, our advocate, our defense attorney. He's the one who's going to make things right for us. He's the one who's going to bring forgiveness. But even then, this is how it works in our minds. So we sin once, we confess we, we trust, we're pretty good about trusting God's going to forgive us. And, and we're going to work really hard not to do it again because we know that good people learn from their mistakes, right? But then we sin again and again and again. And our picture of that conversation that Jesus is having in that courtroom in heaven with the Father begins to change. Pardon me, lost myself in my notes. And that conversation becomes this. It's, it's, just imagine Jesus going to the Father. He says, hey, Father, this is Jesus. I'm coming to you. And it's about Ross again. Yep, he's, he's failed over and over again. Yep, I'm asking you to forgive him. I'm asking you to let him off the hook for the thousandth time. Yeah, please, would you do it? Please, would you just do it? In our minds, Jesus is pleading like a defense attorney who's already used up all of his good excuses. He's already used the excuse that this is the first time. He's already used the excuse probably several times. Oh, yeah, they did it again, but did you see how much longer it took him before they sinned this time? You know, and we picture Jesus as, as this person, this defense attorney, essentially without a case having to resort to pleading with God over emotion, trying just to get Him to feel compassionate enough. We, it's almost like we picture God saying, please, pretty please, please with sugar on top of it. And we just see this empty argument. Please be nice to Him. And we live life wondering when the emotional begging is just not going to be good enough anymore. When we've done too much. When we're going to finally really be rejected. When we're going to be punished as we ought. And in our minds, even if we think the begging is still going to work, 
We imagine God feeling as many of us as parents have felt when our kids come to us at the end of a really long week and a really tiring day and they just please, please, please us to death until out of frustration and just sheer exhaustion we give in. Right? And nobody likes that kind of a relationship. That's not the kind of a relationship that endears you to want to be close to one another. But John isn't saying that. John is not just saying that Jesus is an advocate. He's not just saying He's faithful to plead mercy for us. He's saying He's faithful and just. That it's about justice that you are forgiven. And the conversation that's actually going on in heaven is more like this. Hey, Father, Ross did it again. And I'm reminding you that you have no legal basis to hold his sin against him because I took that on the cross. I paid the penalty. I served the sentence. He's free. Justice is on our side. It isn't just pleading for mercy. Jesus has a rock-solid case. We see that represented elsewhere in a famous passage we quote a lot because it's so meaningful. This is in Romans 8.1. It says, therefore, and the therefore refers back to the text earlier saying that Jesus already paid it all like we just talked about. It says, therefore, there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit, of spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The guilt, the condemnation is gone. And you who continue to hate yourself, we who sometimes continue to hate, hate ourselves because we can't seem to forgive ourselves and love ourselves, that's already taken away. But you say it's hard to understand how God can accept such a lowly person as me. And yeah, there's a certain amount of rightness in that view. Because the reality is sin has corrupted us. Sin has damaged damaged us. Sin has made us lower than we were created to be. Less than the beauty He intended for us to be. But if you have that low view of yourself, you also have a low view of Jesus. You're not allowing Him to save you. You're not allowing Him to be the one who saves you. You're still the judge. And you're still living in self-righteousness, even in your inferiority. Inferiority is still self-absorption, self-righteousness, as much as being haughty is. Both pride and inferiority damage our ability to be faithful witnesses to Jesus, prevent us, put walls up that we feel incapable or or we're incompetent at it. And that's what's behind Peter's betrayal in this passage. And yet when Peter sees Jesus for who he is, and he's really able to accept that, that's what healed him. That's what allows him to be courageous. That's what allows him to be winsome in sharing his faith with thousands and thousands of people over the course of the rest of his lifetime. And whether it's thousands for you or whether it's dozens of people for you, God wants that same it factor of freedom 
and winsomeness to be a part of your life. That internal freedom to be powerful, to be leading others to follow Christ, to enjoy, I mean really enjoy being a part of the power of God working through us to bring life and light and to repair the corruption in other people, to bring the beauty out that He originally intended to be there. God wants to do that through each and every one of us here today. But the problem is those are still nice thoughts. You see, we've all heard that before. We all can probably say that theology. Most of us can probably say, yeah, we understand that theology. But it doesn't, it doesn't sink in. How does the courage and freedom to be that way become a reality in our lives? Last week, I brought up an idea that I think probably, I would guess some of you probably thought was weird and kind of caught you off guard. And it's, it's this idea, and we're going to look at this even more now. It's, that, it's this idea of making peace with our sin. We talked about making peace with our sin last week. And that idea may seem weird to you. Let me explain it this way. Uh, the word that's most commonly translated from Hebrew to peace in our language is the word shalom. But peace is really... Uh, it's just not a great definition. I mean, if we look at it, shalom is much bigger than that. It, it, it has this idea of fullness. It has this idea of wholeness, of safety, of harmony, of rest, of absence from agitation or absence from discord. It, it really has this idea of the completion of something that requires no further action. And I want to walk you through where Peter found that freeing healing to make peace with his sin. Uh, we see later in John 21, another eyewitness account, uh, this passage picking up. And, and uh, it's after the resurrection and the disciples are out fishing and, P- and Jesus shows up on the shore and John sees Jesus and says, Hey, Peter, this is, this is Jesus on the shore. And the, we pick up the text there, John 21, verse 7. As soon as Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. We see... Peter's passion to pursue Jesus. Skipping down to verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Now we've... Many of you have heard this passage before. I want you to come out of your past experience with it and try to see it a different way today. When we notice this, what we notice in this passage, we see Jesus essentially pressing on Peter in a sense to face his three times of betrayal three times in this passage. I mean, that's fairly clear from it. And we see that Peter responded to this with a sense of hurt on Peter's part. He felt the pain of his sin. And when we look at it even a little further, and if you've heard a message on this, you've heard it before, but we understand then that the first two times Jesus asks Peter about, do you love me? He uses this word for perfect love. 
And Peter responds to Jesus saying, yes, I love you, but he's saying, I love you with this less than perfect, incomplete love. And then we see the very third time Jesus asks him, we see, we see Jesus asking him with the same language that Peter was using this, do you love me with this imperfect love? And Peter responds, yes, I love you with that love, right? And this is the way we tend to respond, I think, to that in our lives, whether we consciously connect it to this passage or not. We, we have this pattern in how we respond to sin where we have to make ourselves feel the pain. We have to make ourselves pay a price. We have to do a certain amount of penance because if we don't feel this pain enough, then we really don't deserve being forgiven. Or if we don't feel this pain enough, then we're not serious about changing, right? We get caught in that kind of thinking pretty easily. But that's not really the main point of what Jesus is getting across here. Certainly, he's pressing on Peter that Peter would no longer represent himself, no longer be his own defense attorney, no longer make excuses for himself. And he is matching the number of sins with a number of replies. He is confronting the sin, but he's preventing Peter from saying, yeah, but, or hoping Peter won't. But, but look at how Jesus is doing that. Look at how Jesus is doing that. Jesus is speaking to that part, really, in Peter that's a part of all of us. Jesus is basically approaching Peter saying, Simon, Peter, uh, Dustin, Jay, Mary, Cindy, whatever your name is, I know that you still love me. And I'm speaking to that part of you even in the midst of the depths of your sin that still loves me. I'm calling that out. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm pursuing. That piece of you that still wants relationship with me. And Peter responds with the little strength he has. Because the sin has already crushed him, he doesn't have much strength. He says, you know, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus does something that when we really face it, I think it shocks us all. and We have a hard time accepting it. We have a hard time believing it. We have a harder time even acting on it. He says, feed my sheep. Jesus says to us in the very midst of us facing our sin, I love you. I'm here with you right now in the very midst of your sin. I know you want to love me. And I'm telling you, even right now where you are at, share my love with others. Share how good, how pursuing, how loving I am, even of you right now. How you don't need to hide. Feed my sheep. Help people see that even in the midst of their most desperate places in life, their darkest places, that right then, right there, I love them and they can share the testimony of me. They can witness for me even in that moment of my goodness. He's inviting us out of the shadows by coming into the shadow places of our lives with us so that even those areas of our lives will no longer be barriers to us being faithful and true to Him and faithful witnesses so that we, like Peter, will no longer be afraid to talk openly about our failures and our betrayals and our profane things and the things that have just gone so wrong in our life, but will be so free, so honest, so genuine to speak of His great love even in the context of our failure so that others will also no longer need to hide from Jesus in their failure. 
that they can come and God can speak to that place in them that wants to love Him, that they don't feel they're worthy to love Him at that moment in, and that part can come out and they no longer need to hide in their shame, in their weakness, in their profane sin of their life, that they can come to Him and experience His extravagant love. Peter experiencing this of how God comes to him in this moment is what transforms his life. And I want to move it beyond just words today for us. I've done this a lot, so if you're not comfortable, always feel free to not follow what I'm going to do. But I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. I want to walk you through a meditation in in this process. I want to speak especially to those of you that are here today right now. I'll speak to all of you in a second, but I want to speak especially to those of you who are here today who you feel distant from God. You feel like there's a barrier or a wall or, or, or you can't come to Him because of something you've done, because of sin in your life, because of unbelief, whatever it is. I want you right now, in your mind, to picture that sin, to hear it, to feel it, to stare it in the face. If you're not in that place today, if you are feeling close to God, then I want you to picture the last time you felt like you were distant from God, that you needed to keep Him at a distance. What was going on? What sin, what was going on in your life that made you feel that way? And I want you to stare it in the face. I want you to see it in your mind. I want you to hear it. I want you to feel it again. Can you see it? Can you feel it? If you haven't already done so, just ask Jesus to forgive you. Just take care of that now. Just say, Jesus, would you forgive me? And then I want you to picture Jesus coming to you as he came to Peter in this passage. Picture his eyes looking at you deeply looking into your eyes. And you know that He sees and He knows exactly what you've done. He sees it all. He feels it all. He's there with you in it. And I want you to hear Him ask you, do you love me? Let them ask you that. And then just respond. Respond with whatever weak form of love and reciprocation you have left in you right now. And then would you allow him to say to you what he said to Peter? Feed my sheep. what you're facing, what you've imagined that creates a barrier for you to share your faith, to be faithful in in your testimony, to have an amazing purpose of bringing good news and my power to other people. What you've imagined as a barrier is not a barrier. Feed my sheep. Share my love. Share my goodness even in the midst of where you're at.
And then I'm going to be silent for a minute. Just allow yourself to see it. Allow yourself to feel it. Allow Jesus, like He did with Peter, to come back to you a couple more times and walk you through that same thing. And would you just do that with Him? Holy Spirit, come and make yourself real right now. So often we try to live our faith and our life by what we believe. We try to live it by concepts. But it doesn't become real until we experience it. What I just led you through is a classical spiritual discipline around around meditation. And you see, until you see Jesus with you, in those darkest places of your life, those greatest failures of your life, not trying to crush you, but speaking to that part of you that still wants to love Him, still wants to pursue Him, and inviting, calling that thing out of you, calling that part of you out, and still saying to you, this doesn't have to be a barrier between us or your faithful witness. Until you experience that, you won't be free to be a faithful witness. But the more we experience God's presence coming to us in those moments, the more free we'll be, the more faithful we'll be, and the more we'll get to rejoice and see the power of God, even in all of our mucked-upness, changing people's lives around us like crazy for the good. So the band's going to come. We have one more song that's going to be a little bit of a change of tone because we should be in a celebration mood. But I want to first speak to two audiences, two people, two types of people. I think there's some of you who are here who you haven't really fully put your feet all in to cross that line of faith to follow God. And the reason you haven't is because you want to love Him. You, you believe that He's probably true but you haven't realized that He's coming to you right where you're at. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to fix anything to follow Him. You don't have to... He's got a great plan for you right now. If you've been there and you haven't made that decision, I want to ask you to cross that line of faith and just accept that today. Accept that today. Some of you... You're struggling even during the meditation exercise to sense God's presence coming to you and loving on you right where you're at. You're still feeling distant from God. You're still doubting that. One of the reasons why we pray for one another is because God works through us and His Spirit sometimes makes Himself more real through us praying for one another. So if you're there and you're in that position and you still, in that meditation exercise, you couldn't sense God coming to you and you still feel distance, I want to invite you, uh, while this song is playing, to join us in the back over here in the corner and we'd love to pray for you. We have our annual meeting after this. Uh, 
what we'll do is we'll finish the song and we'll give about three to five minutes for everybody to reorient and then uh, we'll gather back in a little bit. But uh, just respond in worship. And if you're one of those two people, uh, just come grab one of us in the back corner and we'd love to pray pray with you. God bless. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.